Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda brought to you by New Narrative with me, PJ Thumb. Today we have a fantastic guest, Shaza Ishank, the Managing Director of Theatre Ekamatra, and we are filming this from her offices, from Theatre Ekamatra's offices at Aliwal Arts Centre. Very cool. A big welcome especially to New Narrative members who are joining us live on our Discord and our live chat. Welcome to all of you. And uh, before we go on, as always, uh, we're, there's three of us. Uh, my name is PJ Thumb. I'm sitting uh, in front of a wall with a bunch of really cool posters and pictures. Uh, I'm wearing a uh, green, yellow, and brown and multicolored batik shirt. Um, and my pronouns are he, him. This podcast is brought to you by New Narrative, which is a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia, and we rely entirely on your support to survive. So if you like the work we do and you want us to continue, please do join us a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And now, Subash. So here we are at Theatre Akamatra's offices and we're interviewing Shaza Ishak, Managing Director of Theatre Akamatra. And I have to add at the outset, the thumping that you hear in the background is an Indian dance company which is practicing, is it downstairs? Upstairs. Upstairs, <laughs> Upstairs, which is why the thumping is particularly uh, loud and uh, well, but it adds to the, uh, you know, the ambiance, right? We're at an art centre and there's a lot of cool stuff happening. Okay, but before we go on, as always, my friend and co-host, editor-in-chief of Wake Up Singapore, Sean Francis Han. How are you today, Sean? Hi, yeah, really excited to be here and really excited to get into this episode as well. I mean, theatre as a literature major is something that's very close to my professional academic career. So, yeah, I definitely want to dive right into this, right? But before we get into any of that, uh, hi, I'm Sean Francis. I'm wearing a salmon-coloured t-shirt with uh, green jeans as usual, and my pronouns are he, him. So, Shaza, tell us what are you what are you wearing and what your pronouns are. Hi, I'm Shaza Isha. Um, I'm wearing a black dress and my pronouns are she, her. All right. So, let's just dive straight into it. Okay. Um, I want to get to know who are you and what are your struggles and what are the challenges that you faced um, as a woman, uh, as a Muslim, as a minority theatre practitioner in Singapore. Um, and, and if I can add, yeah. as an Indian, right? Oh, okay. So you're like a minority of a minority of a minority, <laughs> yeah. right? You're a woman, you're an Indian, you're a Muslim in Singapore. These are all very strongly minority categories. And, yeah. and so it's really fascinating to meet you and talk to you about, uh, you know, your life because you, you've, um, um, you know, got a lot of very unique experience. So, yeah. I, I think for me, you know, these um, markers, like, you know, being Indian, being Muslim, being female, um, I never really realized it until at some point in my 20s or something, I realized that my whole life I've been trying to minimize the differences that makes me who I am. Um, so, so you know, like if you're a woman, you're, you'll try to, you know, strive to not seem that way just because, you know, you don't want people to see you in that way. I, I don't know yeah, yeah. really how to explain. Yeah. And being an Indian Muslim, I think like many other Indian Muslims, I think we had a lot of um, identity crisis growing up because 
uh, my grandparents were from everywhere else and they, they settled in Malay villages. So they don't even speak... I mean, my parents don't really speak Indian languages. Mm -hmm. So not Tamil, not Hindi or Urdu, but they spoke Malay. So when I was growing up, I just thought quite simplistically that I was Malay and that I was Muslim. And I didn't really understand what being Muslim was or the concept of God was until actually 9-11. And there was this one point uh, where me and my dad was on a bus and, you know, people... I I think we were discussing um, 9-11. I think I was about 10 years old. And maybe we were having quite a loud conversation about it and people around us started saying pretty racist, mean things to my dad. And um, my dad just told me, like, you know what, it's getting quite hostile here, let's go down. And I didn't really understand why we were going down from the the bus as opposed to saying something to them about this, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I was actually quite angry at my dad because I felt like it was such a defeatist stance Mm. Uh, like why, why are we not confronting them but then I realized that's what we do sometimes you know like when we're seen as like problematic or the issue we tend to remove ourselves from the situations so I think um, yeah I think I grew up not wanting to be these things uh, but when I started understanding that I can't run away from it and it's actually things that people have made us feel uh, about ourselves and we can feel very differently about it um, I think my whole stance to who I was changed um, and I think a lot of it was because I run an ethnic minority theatre company and every day you, you, you're confronted by these conversations by these issues either through the plays that we are producing or by conversations that we're having in the office or when, when we're like um, discussing future projects so I think um, it took me a while to actually internalise the things that I was actually doing at work and then realizing these are all things that I need to um, manifest within myself, and mm. then I can I can do my job better. Right. Yeah. So I, I want to ask. Okay, what is theater at Kimatra? And actually, before we even get to what it is, what does the name mean? It's got a very nice, interesting, yeah. catchy name. Right? What is what's in the name? Yeah. So um, I always thought that Ekamatra was a Malay word because mm. um, I've known it to be a Malay theater company for the longest time. Mm. Um, it actually um, sta- uh, was established in 1988 and Ekamatra actually is Sanskrit for one vision. Oh. Yeah, uh, I, I only found out like five years into this. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we should we should talk about archival as well. You know, like this, like all the history about these companies that, you know, um, don't have the resources to archive. We just don't have enough of these conversations. Mm-hmm. You can't like Google it and find it. It's through conversations with people who have been part of Ekamatra in the past that's how I found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so take me through your journey of getting into theatre and then into theatre Ekamatra. Yeah. So um, I was from Sida Girls where there were very few Malay um, girls in the school and Malay-speaking ones. So everyone was automatically part of the Malay Language Drama Debate Society. And that was when I got interested in uh, debate and drama and, um, and that sort of led me to eventually um, participating in Ekamatra's inter-tertiary competition uh, called um, White Box Festival, Pesta Peti Puteh, so it was White Box Festival. And um, all these emotions and feelings that I told you about, like about my, my uh, the, the incident with my dad and then other incidents that followed after 9-11. I, I mean, actually, sorry, just about 9-11. I don't know whether a lot of people feel this way about it, but I felt such a... It was such... It, it was so impactful 
to me. And I feel like we talk about how much it affects Americans, uh, people there. Uh, pe- uh, but the ripples were very much felt yeah. uh, for, for a lot of people here as well, uh, even till today. So I think that was when, you know, you, you start really understanding these little nuances to your identity, right? Mm. And I felt like um, theatre was just really useful in allowing me to explore these things mm. um, because you know like that there is this general feel like when you're doing theater okay you can experiment you can make mistakes um, and I feel like that's what I um, I found in at Eka as well um, but these conversations about racism about about Islamophobia and everything was always shut down at every juncture of my life until mm. I found Eka um, when I went into the office one day like um, after the festival and I wanted to volunteer and be part of the uh, arts education program um, programming I came into the office and there was a bunch of people who were talking about um, the next year's programming and actually like, I think there was Alfia and there was um, the previous general managers there um, FND Ibrahim who was the then artistic director and they were all talking and uh, um, I was at the site trying to you know disappear and, and just listen in right um, and at one point I think uh, I remember someone saying something like um you know, these are all not ethnic, uh, these are not Malay issues, these are national issues. I don't understand when it is going to be seen as national issues. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, we can say these things? You know, yeah, I just felt like my whole life and a lot uh, for, for a lot of us, we've just been told to, yeah, yeah, stop complaining. You know, just move past it, move move through it and, and make it strong, Make uh, allow it to make yourself stronger or something like that. But... But here, like when I was 17 years old and incredibly impressionable, I was just so um, awed by the honesty that was in the office. And I felt like, okay, I think I found my home. I'm going to find the vocabulary to explain all these things that I've been feeling um, and do something about it. Yeah. So that was how I started at Ikamatra. I um, volunteered for a good like three years or so, joined an investment firm for two years after. Um, because there were no jobs in the arts at that point. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I still wanted to do something about this. I wasn't really feeling fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined uh, Eka again as the company manager with absolutely no um, knowledge of how to run a business, how to run a company, how to run a non-profit. In fact, the word non-profit was only something that dawned upon me maybe five, six years ago. I took a really long time to understand my job, I felt. Okay, so we got into it a little bit, right? But um, why why is there a need, um, and what is the, the unique strength of having a uh, minority focused theatre company instead of just you know a theatre company? Ekamatra mm. uh, is explicitly and overtly minority focused. So what are the strengths of that? Yeah. I think at the end of the day, what we do is storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, theatre. It's all about storytelling, and I think that. I, I think that Ekamatra and other ethnic minority theatre companies are incredibly important because not enough ethnic minority stories and narratives are included in the national conversation. It's seen as something that is, um, you know, for us to deal with. And for the longest time, I think uh, a shift in Malay theatre has been uh, that at first it was um, Malay works created by Malay artists for a predominantly Malay audience talking about Malayness. Mm-hmm. Right, but then we've matured to something about the Malay condition, and then m- 
uh, now I think it's about oh, what is most important about our voice is not that not just that we are Malay but that we are ethnic minority mm-hmm. and uh, these are stories that we need to keep on putting on stage because it's not being talked about enough on um, in other mediums you know so I think um, it, it's really that and I think when, when, when you watch or you listen or you hear these sort of stories you realise that um, Singapore is Singapore and, and the world uh, really is uh, a lot more it, it brings out some of these like problems issues and and conversations around things that should be talked about more mm-hmm. yeah Alright, so beyond just production, right? I found that um, Theatre Akimatra actually does a lot of very interesting programs, uh, outreach and education. So I want to kind of ask you about some of these uh, programs. So first off, there's the Playwright Mentorship Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, just to add on, like why I feel this company in particular um, is very invested in industry development programs is because uh, we need to make sure that there is a pipeline for ethnic minorities to come into the arts. Okay. Uh, for the longest time, I think if you are in the arts, usually you're relatively affluent, mm-hmm. or you are not, and you will con- you continue struggling throughout. Mm-hmm. And I think that has impeded professionalism. Uh, whether within the artists or within companies, uh, ethnic minority companies as well, uh, because there's just not enough people who are doing this full-time. So um, for ethnic minority arts companies, right, the sometimes uh, their job is not just to create, but yeah. it's also, there, there's so many other layers of responsibility that I feel uh, in, um, other arts companies don't have. So our responsibilities would be, for example, pipelines yeah. uh, uh, to, to, to be becoming arts makers, theatre makers. Um, and I think, yeah, just to explain a bit about why we have a lot of those, yeah. So for Playwright uh, Development Programme, basically we get um, younger um, playwrights. Uh, we used to get young playwrights to come in, be mentored, um, have experiences writing um, and, and having a safe space to fail. I think that's something that, is not uh, present enough mm-hmm. um, in our industry places to fail uh, we've, we've, we've done it to some degree of success there are moments where I feel like I wish we could do more to allow more artists to come in do things and learn from more failures uh, mm-hmm. well you know I'm using the word failure uh, relatively easily but you know you know what I mean yeah, yeah. so um, I think for, for the playwright mentorship programs it's mainly to allow people who didn't go to like art schools or mm. things like that to have a space to to learn something like playwriting. That's wonderful. How yeah. so? How do you select these uh, playwrights? Um, I think uh, we try to break down all these uh, barriers, right? To to um, into the arts. I mean, it's already incredibly classist. I feel like mm-hmm. the arts, and and I think so. We try to break that down by allowing um, as many people to apply as possible, and then we have. Uh, free I mean we have um, uh, open uh, workshops first mm-hmm. so through the open workshops we find people whose voices uh, are telling uh, are pushing for this simi- for a similar m- mission and vision as uh, Ekamatras so that's how we identify people who we feel might uh, might be able to contribute to our stories okay so, so one program that really caught my attention was the Kampong Glam Tales. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so so the, the tagline is a dramatized tour. Yeah. And I'm very, I was really fascinated with this because I remember I, I went on, on, you know, tours of Kampong Glam when yeah. I was a kid, you know, yeah. learning journey kind of thing. And those were quite terrible, to mm. be honest. So I'm wondering, so so what 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 is Kampong Glam Tales? 
<laughs> okay, so actually, I also thought it could have been really terrible mm-hmm. uh, when when we were first commissioned by um, the Malay Heritage Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, you know, it was going to be we needed to. It felt like we needed to, you know, present a relatively reductionist. Um, story to to how how Singapore uh, came about mm. things like that but I thought it was like one of the most eye-opening um, commissions we've ever had mm. so the Malay Heritage Center curators um, walked us uh, I mean did a whole um, tour for us through the Malay Heritage Center um, it, it's it seems quite text heavy sometimes the the Malay Heritage Center but mm. actually if you took the time to read most of these things, I felt like, wow, this is one of the museums that actually um, tries to um, sway, uh, like change the story from you know the, this thing that we are always told about the sleepy fishing village. Mm. I feel like the curators did an amazing job in telling us, you know what, that that it wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole different story. So let's tell this story. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought. Um, uh, I thought it was just going to be for one run. So it was supposed to be just like, a, I think, a month mm-hmm. of, of this Malay, Herit- uh, Malay uh, sorry, Kampung Glam tours, right? Mm-hmm. But it, we continued uh, doing it because it was, rel- it was quite popular with um, visitors. Mm. I think, uh, and, and quite popular with Singaporeans as well. I think people are just quite thirsty for stories that are not what you read in the textbooks, you know, not, not, not raffles onwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think... Um, that's that's another thing that's really important to us. We we want to debunk this myth that uh, that, that, that there, there was a very clear start to where uh, mm-hmm. how Singapore started. You know, yeah. And as an ethnic mi- minority theatre company, I think that's it, it immediately becomes part of our purview. Mm-hmm. Can I ask an obvious question though yeah. about um, whether you found problems contradicting or uh, you know interacting intersecting with the official government narrative you know because okay as a historian I love the Malay Heritage Centre it might be the best history museum in Singapore in terms of how it presents uh, history and, and it's very thought provoking you know and recenters history in a very different way from the conventional narrative um, but the the obvious uh, challenge with presenting a Malay-centered history of Singapore is, of course, that the government deliberately, the PAP government deliberately moved away from that in the wake of separation from Malaysia, because any reading of our history that connects with our Malay roots inevitably leads us back towards Malaya at a time especially when the government was trying to create a lot of distance and make us forget about our Malayan identity to great success, right? Most Singaporeans today grow up never knowing what it, what Malayan means. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it came to telling these stories, how did you, um, you know, find the official narrative um Interacting with the kind of stories that you wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially now, I feel um, some, there are some people who feel like we could push that even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the stance that we've taken is a bit like we're fence straddlers. We're straddling the fence really mm-hmm. well, um, and and um, mainly because we we have a lot to lose and we don't have enough support yet yeah. to be able to back, be backed by you know um, solely like private donations so on and so forth you know like talking about the survivability of the, can, uh, the, the company if, if there is like um, 
uh, something that happens uh, if if we were to tell something quite con- I mean tell stories that are even more controversial than we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of issues, yeah, we've been told to be more Malay. Um, whatever that means, because so who sends you this? Sort I mean, of you can, you, yeah. I mean, the powers that be yeah, that cannot yeah. be named. All right, okay, got yeah. it. <laughs> and, and I think uh, it's it's a conversation that we uh, I'm only now becoming more confident in having as well and pushing as well. Like, what what do you mean by Malay? Mm-hmm. I think for for a long time because we were so. Uh, we so needed um, and even until now you know we're, we're so reliant on government grants so on and so forth there's only so much that we can fight mm-hmm. but now I think there's a there are smart ways of fighting this mm-hmm. by having conversations inviting them into the fold of these conversations as well and then eventually fighting policies that you feel are completely um, I mean I think sorry just to backtrack I feel like um for a long time, I thought I was just, you know, a, a, a manager of this theatre company, right? Which I am. But mm-hmm. I realised that my role is so much more than that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the older I grow, the more I learn, the more I know that this theatre company is a pathway to more changes in, in how we can tell our stories. So the responsibility, again, is about slowly pushing towards telling stories that are more true um, and also um, bringing these people on these stories uh, like along along our journey as well mm-hmm. um, yeah but but there are some things that are quite ridiculous like um, that, that Malay thing or, or this narrative that you mentioned you know like this is the story that you're supposed to tell and then we are trying to tell different stories I think uh, a lot of theatre relies on satire as well and I think especially in Singapore that's quite the the, the approach to a lot of it and I can't say that we found a different um or smarter approach yet. Okay. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I want to ask, right? Well, what is the dramatized part of the tour? Oh, okay. So there are uh, parts of the um, the museum. If you've been to the museum, there are parts where they talk about, for example, the different jewelries or different spices that came from this country and that. Uh, so we dramatize how it came about. Mm-hmm. Um, how things like. Um, going to haji like going for the pilgrimage for example mm-hmm. what it actually meant for uh singaporeans at that point um how haji lane is such a hipster place right now but mm-hmm. historically it was where everyone went to if they wanted to go for the um islamic pilgrimage wait what really yeah. okay <laughs> yeah so that's what i learned yeah it's a well. huge change so if i wanted to go for the hajj mm. I would go to Ajil, or which makes sense, the name, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd go I know, Ajilin. why did we think that, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, but then what would I do at Haji Lane that would allow me uh, so to... So you, I think what happened was that you'd queue up and then um, there were ships, I mean, because the sea was um, near here, right? So there were ships um, that would bring you on to uh, Makkah. Oh my God. Yeah, so that was the queue. And then sometimes like one of, uh, in, in that tour, like um, some people get left behind because not only were Singaporeans um, uh, congregating there, there were people from around the Nusantara that came to get on the ship from here. All right. Wait, yeah. wait Nusantara, sorry. Uh, the Malay Archipelago. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's part that, um, you know, the modern narrative cutting us off from the Malay world, but Singapore was a major port, mm-hmm. right? One yeah. of the important ports in the whole world in the late 1800s onwards. And people from around the region would come to Singapore if they wanted to catch a ship and, of course, later a plane 
to anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So um, the Hajj was part of that. But of course, also the slave trade. Singapore's main wealth in the 19th century comes from drugs, the mm -hmm. opium trade. And then number two was slaves from China, from India. Uh, we call the Chinese slaves coolies today and we like romanticize them, but you're, they were indentured slaves. And they came to Singapore and then were shipped out throughout the region. Mm -hmm. Many of them never even actually got to see Singapore properly. They'd just be shipped in and like goods loaded on another boat and shipped out somewhere else to mm. another of the major cities. So Singapore was this huge transshipment point. And of course, Kampong Glam was a lot closer to the sea yeah. mm. back then than it is today, right? Yeah. We have to remember Beach Road was the, was called Beach Road. Literally because, the Beach yeah. Road. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to kind of get into the program that uh, is currently being run and which got you in, uh, into Theatre Ekamantra itself, which is Besta Perti Pute. Yeah. Right. Can you tell us about that? It's Actually, the, it, it translates to what? White Box Festival. White Box Festival, yeah. All right. Actually, we um, we no longer have White Box Festival. I mean, we might bring it back, but the, the thing is that it's really expensive and uh, to, 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 do, to run it because mm -hmm. um, there was not enough uh, financial support. When, uh, as a 30-year-old, when I was looking through... Um, Eka's um, financial records from like 10, 12, 15 years ago and I saw how much it used to cost. Mm -hmm. It was not, almost nothing but it was actually done because a lot of people were volunteering okay. which is great. I mean, I love that people were volunteering and everything but it also meant that we were not actually paying people uh, to do things that were very... Um, uh, that was asking quite a lot of out of them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of students from uh, the JCs, from the polys, uh, from the ITEs who were involved in um, uh, Pesta Pati Pute. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all these artists who were very uh, involved in Ikamatra would then uh, mentor them through uh, these things. For example, I went for uh, an acting workshop, acting masterclasses mm -hmm. run by Sunny Hussein. Um, and then my uh, director at that my director at that point went for mentorship uh, and masterclasses uh, with Effendi Ibrahim, uh, Mohamed Farid Jainal, who's now the artistic director at Ikamatra. Mm -hmm. So all these things were really like the first um, exposure we've ever had if we hadn't gone to art school. I didn't, do you know, I didn't even know that there was an art school until I was 18 years old. <laughs> yeah. So because... To be fair, it's because Sida only told you you have to go to GC mm. or, or mm. else, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, you if, if you don't know, you really don't know. Mm. And, and there were a lot of things that um, a lot of us didn't know. Yeah. And so like the White Box Festival, just like a lot of ACAS, um, um outreach and development programs were very illuminating for me mm -hmm. and others um, in how... You know, there were other things that you could be and you could do mm -hmm. um, besides what they tell you at school. Okay. Yeah. But, but what exactly is it? Mm. Yeah. So um, they, they brought together um, different, uh, like small groups of students, like 10, 10 students or so from uh, tertiary schools in Singapore. And then they brought together, uh, they brought us together, uh, ran master classes with everyone. And then we could produce our own works. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, I was part of the Masik Poly's um, Submission is it like uh, to to Pesta Peti Pute, and it was me and um, Irfan Kas. I mean Irfan Kasban was the director. He is um, the recent Young Artist Award uh, winner, mm. actually. Yeah, so Irfan wrote this um, play called Project Chongka, which was about the incredibly reductionist approach to ethnicity, uh, CMIO, mm -hmm. and I was playing the O. 
Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I was playing the O, and then like um, so I had a split personality in that play. So I was um, you know I was this at some point. I was I felt this way. And basically, the whole time I just had a bit of a identity crisis, which you know um, is very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then um, and then at some point, um, it was all about how these this redux, uh, reductionist approach. Um, is very harmful to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was the play that we were acting in, and mm. I mean, I was acting in, and then um, it it won the the overall uh, category. Mm-hmm. So basically, all the all the um, schools were competing with each other, and then there were people who would then vote for who was best, so mm. on and so forth. Yeah. So on that note, talking about um, socio political issues like CMIO and reductionist racial categories, right? Yeah. What do you think is the relation between theater and social justice issues, social change, and activism? Um, I think uh, theater and the arts um, kind of allows us to uh, experientially understand some of these things. Mm-hmm. That there is great merit in reading it. There is great merit in in uh, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also merit in watching it, seeing it um, uh, reflected. Yeah. towards you you know and and either reflecting what you already feel mm-hmm. or reflecting something completely different and mm-hmm. and feeling very differently about things that you already had an opinion about mm-hmm. so for example like um one of the plays that i produced in 2015 i think was um Alfian Saad's um gang reboot cabinet it's called GRC uh, and um, in the in the play, he switched. Um, I mean, the majority were Malays, and then the minorities uh, were Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not in Singapore. Uh, it's not based uh, in Singapore. So so that uh, so you know it it went through a lot. I mean, uh, the the play talks about different issues that we face as Malays in Singapore, mm-hmm. and um, and at the end of the play, you know, some I usually as the managing director or the artistic director like we usually stand outside to to say thanks to our audience when when they finished watching it right Mm -hmm. and there were quite a lot of people who came up to me and said you know i really didn't realize there was such a thing as um chinese privilege in singapore and i think that to me is why we do what we do right like Mm -hmm. it theater allows us to reflect these things and and make people think um in a way that is quite safe if you don't want to say anything about it you can you could just Mm -hmm. leave if you don't like it, if you don't agree, you can also do that. Mm-hmm. Tell us or not tell us, and then and then go. But um, it forces you to be in a space with you know two hundred other people, hundred other people, all watching and feeling something for what's being put up on on stage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I want to kind of pick up on something that you said uh, yeah. that I found very interesting, which is that people came up to you after the play and said, I didn't realize that there was Chinese privilege. So it, it ties into another question, which is what is the, the, the strength or the, the force that theater has over, um, you know, simply publishing a research paper or reading an article? Because why would you, how, how and why would you realize that, oh, you know, there's, there's Chinese privilege after watching a mm. play? It seems that the play did something or bypassed certain barriers, right? So tell us how does that happen? What does, what does theatre bring to the table that a research paper or an article would not be able to? I feel like audiences could answer that question better because okay. for me... <laughs> no, uh, but, but um, I feel like uh, maybe how I can share, I mean, how I can... Um, share this my, my opinion on it is by how I felt about watching other shows from yeah. other theatre companies right mm-hmm. so uh, maybe just like a small anecdote like um, 
in in 2009 or something um i had a friend whose mother passed away mm-hmm. and um we we lost touch during that period because i was in in singapore for a while mm-hmm. and um a year after that when i met her i bought a ticket to a play um and it was poop by um the finger players um and so the two of us watched i mean wanted to watch it and i chose this play because i thought it sounded really funny because it was called poop and i thought like, i didn't even read the um the synopsis i just decided you know what we're going to watch it and when we started watching it um we realized that it was about um someone who had committed suicide and then also childhood cancer and the thing is my friend's mother had passed away from cancer mm-hmm. and that was the first ever time we met right a year after her mother's death and we just sat there and started crying and crying and crying because we felt like all the things that we were feeling about each other about what had just happened to her about our lives were on stage um and it was such catharsis it was insane it was just like after that we didn't even need to talk about what had happened or what had transpired over the last year um uh, like that we, we we weren't talking to each other because everything that we felt was laid bare on on stage mm. these actors were reflecting exactly how we were feeling all these thoughts um around um mortality all these thoughts around um you know diseases cancer family and um and i don't know that was really really powerful to me mm-hmm. uh, another play that was really impactful to me was actually nothing by cake uh, i think i was struggling with a lot of loneliness i think in my youth and when i watched it i realized that everyone was struggling with loneliness as well mm-hmm. and there's something so real about something people might think is fake on stage mm-hmm. i and i feel like that that was so impactful to me and therefore i feel like it means so much to me that i'm running a theater company right now because i can do that for other people as well mm-hmm. not just through uh, leadership or whatever but if 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 we were just to reduce it to one thing just coming to watch a play um this like being displaced from reality for 2 hours or so mm-hmm. and watching something like that is a a bit like a like a vacuum yeah. of what is reality mm-hmm. yeah So you brought up some very interesting plays, some very profound plays that had a deep impact on you, right? But how has that been now that we are in COVID times? You know, um, it, 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 theaters and plays have kind of shut down. Uh, I'm sure that the funding for the arts has suffered. So, what are some of the major challenges that theater Ekamatra and the arts in general uh, have been uh, faced with in the in this pandemic? Um, one of the things I feel is that different theater companies, different arts companies, are differently ready to face uh, the pandemic, okay. uh, and and the issues that uh, come with it. So there are more well-resourced arts companies that had already um, archived their past works in a way that was audience-ready, whereas like companies like Ikamatra um, archived it for internal. As an internal um, mm-hmm. record or document. So, so, what do you mean by archiving your past? Ah, uh, okay. So, so for example, when I put on a play, like we mm. we do uh, record it, but uh, the level of how professionally and the quality of the the recording itself mm. differs from arts companies to arts companies. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, for ours, um, I I'd be happy to watch it with you here at okay. Eka, but I wouldn't put it up on online because I don't think it's it's. Good. In, the quality is good enough mm-hmm. for people to want to watch um, 
at home. Yeah. Uh, it's not just the quality of the recording, but it's also because we employ a lot of different things uh, in our works, like uh, visual media, uh, so on and so forth, that can't, can't quite be captured uh, on on a record, yeah. I mean, on a recording device, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's one thing that we were all n- not as ready. I mean, different people were dif- like ready differently. Just like life, right? Like there were people who were more re- well resourced that, you know, didn't feel much from the pandemic, and then there were people who, uh, from different S- uh, SES, um, that felt it a lot more and yeah. very uh, immediately as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, right? The the um, archival. The other thing is. Um, our ability to immediately move to something online. Yeah. Um, a lot of our uh, theatre makers are the only theatre makers. So moving it to something where, okay, just, you know, we were told, like, you know, just record something, put it out online. That's that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't happen for everyone. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has a camera. I know, it sounds insane, but it's true. Um, I mean, if you could see around this office, there's really not that much with the exception of, you know, like some costumes, um, some props, but we don't have massive uh, equipment. We don't have, um, light, uh, like, even lighting equipment has been mm. donated to us. So we haven't ever bought, like, for example, a really good, like, uh, video camera to make sure that we, in the case of this sort of situations, we could do it properly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think pe- people suffered differently from yeah. it. Um, yeah. So, so, so take it, us through sort of how the state has responded to mm. the crisis of the pandemic in the arts. Can I, can I just jump in before mm. we get to yeah. that? I, I, I'm not clear what the arts funding situation, and in particular your financial situation, was before the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. Because we always hear about arts struggling in Singapore. But what, what can you give us an idea of you know, things like um, your revenue as a percentage of your costs? Yeah. Uh, or the number of employees you have, or the amount of time it takes to produce a play, and the amount of resources needed, and and you know comparative to say a bigger well-resourced company. Yeah, um, my favorite topic. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the funding. Uh, well, not really, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, so for Tete Kamatra, like we are part of the major company scheme uh, by the National Arts Council, which is I think uh, that highest form of uh, government funding uh, that companies and artists can get. Um, and I, I believe in from the last time I checked, which was probably 2019, there are 52 peop- uh, 52 companies on uh, on the com- uh, major company scheme. And what it does is that uh, for the most part, for, for Eka at least, it, it supports about 50% of our funding. Um, and and the amount that, that the quantum that's been given to us is hundred eighty thousand, but it can only cover up to fifty percent. The rest of it, the other fifty percent, is meant to be made up of earned and raised income. So earned income for arts companies is usually like ticket sales, um, merchandise if there's any, um, rental income if you rent out your space, things like that. For raised income is um, donations. Um, sometimes people uh, take raised income as um, uh, commissions as well. Things, yeah, so, so uh, thereabouts. Uh, grants, sorry, grants are part of raised income as well. So for companies like ours, usually the issue, the biggest issue is the raised income part. Uh, philanthropy, arts philanthropy in particular, is not prevalent in ethnic minority communities for a number of reasons. And what is quite startling and um, disturbing to me is that we don't have the numbers. And when we don't have the numbers, it seemingly is just 
it seemingly sounds just like a complaint oh nobody's giving to these companies but and for the longest time I believed that I kept thinking I was really horrible as a fundraiser the company's not good enough to fundraise and then I realized you know what there's no there's no culture of giving to the arts in Malay communities for example mm-hmm. um, and and there are two, two there are two parts to this one is that uh, ethnic minority communities are not ready to give to the arts and then the, on the other side uh, there have been many studies that prove that you usually give to um, uh, organizations uh, or causes that reflect your own um, situations or issues that you are particularly interested in mm-hmm. so my, the question now is like who feels for ethnic minority issues if we continue seeing it as though it's only for us to deal with like where how how can we I feel like there needs to be like a complete paradigm shift in understanding that ethnic minority issues are part of our issues all of our issues and um, I think that conversation doesn't happen enough because um, nobody wants to admit that that companies like ours are trailing behind in the philanthropy in philanthropy in fundraising not because we are not good enough but because there are many other um, issues that uh, are beyond our um, reach and capacity yeah. to change mm. yeah sure we are we have to be part of that change and i think slowly we are understanding it and we are being part of that but um, what what are the roles of um, institutions national institutions in changing this for with us Mm. Yeah. So um, you had other questions. You mentioned about um, how we were doing before, right? Yeah. Um, struggling. Uh, always, always been struggling. Uh, I for a while I thought that was just going to be how it was going to be for forever. But then you know, again, you realize that um, that diversifying income means that you need more people on your team. Yeah. Uh, before the pandemic, um, there were uh, three full timers and one part-timer um, so my artistic director is actually part-time um, and then there were three um, people who were full-time one is me I, I just got back from my studies at that point um, so uh, I, I just got back um, and then became the managing director I had a company manager who was dealing with uh, the administrative issues of I mean administrative part of the company and then there's a productions and programs manager who dealt um predominantly with um, productions so it's very like hands-on kind of job um, and then uh, after I mean once the pandemic hit um, now I'm kind of the only one that's left I mean I am the only one that's left uh, Farid uh, my artistic director is uh, part-time with the company still so it's kind of between the two of us um, running the company right. yeah for you your it sounds like many of the issues the, the things you talk about are far more Singapore centric so it'd be harder to um, get donations from around the region, mm-hmm. right? But have you ever thought about doing things which would appeal to a broader base uh, and talk about, say, um, you know, the challenges of modernity and being Muslim in Southeast Asia and then trying to expand your base that way and appeal to a broader audience? Yeah, so I think the conversation about internationalization of the company has been on our minds for a while because um, for a while the National Arts Council also was pushing for interna- internationalization and then maybe because of the pandemic it's kind of dropped off. Um, but um, there were there were two camps uh, around internationalization. One camp was telling us, I mean because as a Tete Kamacho is highly, I mean it's very, it's not just between me and Farid. 
you know, like we always talk to our artists, we always talk to former artistic directors, people who still feel they have a stake in the company, which is completely fair. So we have all these conversations and there were two opinions. One was that we shouldn't focus on internationalization because we can do so much better at home. Yeah. There are more things that we can do at home. There are more things that we can fix about our uh, art making, about uh, and we can heighten the quality of the works that we're putting up. Completely fair. And then there's the other half who goes, uh, who who has told us that you know if you don't internationalize, you're just gonna die because there's not enough audience here, mm. which again is also really fair. Yeah. So we again like this is something that we were um, trying to figure out, and uh, we have moved towards more internationalization. So for example, one of the works that, excuse me, uh, got cancelled um, earlier last year because of COVID. It, it's called Beirut, which is a transcreation of Pooh. Um, it got uh, when when it got cancelled, we decided to film it, uh, very relatively amateurly because again, like I mentioned, not all of us are film people. Mm. I didn't even know how to produce, like how to change it from a theatrical production into like a film. I didn't know how to plan um, our shoot schedule, for example. So a lot of things that we just learned on the fly. Uh, so we record, we filmed it, thinking that you know what, at least we have some form of archival for ourselves. The designers then decided. I mean, the designers and us uh, decided. Uh, let's treat it. Let's let's edit it to something that we wanted to see, and then um, the Tokyo Festival, uh, Festival Tokyo, sorry, Festival Tokyo decided to commission it and uh, and make made it a part of their festival uh, in twenty twenty. So you know that cool. that work went to Japan. Uh, the film version of the work went to Japan. Um, over the years, a lot of other festivals have also asked us to be part of their fe- uh, or, uh, part of their festival to travel. But um, if if you know anything about these festivals, right, is that they can't give us hundred percent of the yeah. cost, right? They give us maybe twenty percent, thirty percent, and then the rest has to be fundraised. So when fundraising is a problem already, yeah. going overseas is almost a. Uh, like unli- it is incredibly unlikely. Mm. We've done it some uh, like a few times, but I felt like the compromises that we had to make was not um, fair. Mm. Um, like for example, it meant that maybe we had to pay our artists less because we had to bring all these people there, and I'm I don't want to do that anymore. I think Eka is um, has grown enough to pay everyone fairly and well. Um, and I think that's the standard that we need to keep to. So if it means that we have to say no to some things, then we have to say no to some things. But it's never been easy, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, that is definitely something we are interested in. Uh, because, like, stories... Uh, like, so many of our stories are stories that can be told anywhere. And any ethnic minority can feel for it. Eth- any marginalised communities or any sort of minorities can feel that, you know what, this I, I really resonate with it. Uh, but it's really a matter of resources that has stopped us from venturing further um, um, from from Singapore. Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, if you if you internationalize, right, that I mean both sides of argument are are, are very compelling. Uh, internationalization, maybe better survival. But at the same time, there is something really important about telling stories which are really specific to Singapore for our community to help us understand ourselves. And those are so important to our ourselves, our spiritual lives, our cultural lives, and it would be very sad to lose that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just to add one more thing, I think if you've, if, as an ethnic minority Singaporean, if you've travelled anywhere, I am so sure that you've been told that you don't look Singaporean. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had that before? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, so, I think we've had several people on the show tell us that exact yeah, thing. Mm. Right? Like yeah. so so we you know, wherever I travel, people are always insistent that I'm not Singaporean because I don't look what like what they feel Singaporeans look like. Um, I suppose I'm not old I'm also not as rich as crazy rich Asian kind of Singaporean, which is uh, insanely n- enough. None of us are what, <laughs> What people keep t- talking to me about, like, oh my god, you must be really rich if oh. you're from Singapore, right? So, um, yeah, so there's so, so many of these like stories that you want to uh, debunk without having to, you know, have an argument about it. And I feel like one one of the things is that uh, arts and culture. You know, the more you 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 share that Singapore is not, you know, monoethnic, that it's you know a huge bunch of different things when we we allow these sort of stories to travel beyond our shores I think people slowly get an understanding that it's it's this is the reality yeah we had a whole podcast about how unrepresentative crazy rich Asians was and and for me like funny thing is growing up the when people heard I'm Singaporean it was always Michael Finn chewing gum and then after crazy rich Asians now it's always crazy rich Asians so I just preempted by starting to loudly condemn crazy rich Asians and how you know unrepresentative and even outright racist it is yeah. so that just just cuts people off they don't talk about yeah. it to yeah so I did watch it which is why probably like you know I, I wasn't yeah, I didn't watch it I think. not worth yeah. your time uh, but yeah it was such a big thing like um when it came out, I think, I can't, I can't remember exactly when it came out, but I did my master's in London in 2018, 2019. Uh-huh. So the topic was always that. So for example, when we when we were even talking about arts funding, uh, there were people who, who told me like, but I mean, you can just ask all these rich people to, to donate, right? Yeah, sure. Some companies can, but not us. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know these people. Tell me. Yeah. My, my own experience is, you know, to be honest, rich people become rich filthy rich also because they don't give their money away mm. you know they they that's that's they have a certain mentality which allows them to become rich and that mentality is tightly controlling every single penny so it's actually very hard to get money out of rich people it's far more easy to get money out of people who have a far more greater sense of um, experience of the rest of the community and understand mm. the the kind of suffering. Well, I don't know if suffering is the right word, but who have uh, more of a community spirit. Mm. And of course, not all rich people are that way. We new new narrative has that donations from wealthy people. And we're very grateful for it. But uh, yeah, one of the things when I started first with uh, Project Southeast Asia at Oxford and then New Narrative, you know, both times I was like, yeah, if I just find a few rich people who give us just, a, you know, uh, you know, $50,000 here and there, then we'll have our whole budget funded. And it's never the case. Mm. You know, we're funded by thousands of small 10 to $20 donations. Mm. And I, I, I would assume that's probably your experience too. Yeah. Actually, it's not just about donations. There was this one time um, I had a meeting about um, the future of Ekamacha with someone who, you know, could inform policy, so on and so forth. And uh, she said to me, I don't understand why you're not borrowing from your friends and family. And it only highlighted to me that, uh, because she said, like, you know, all these um, uh, Chinese theatre companies, that uh, uh, all these Chinese arts companies, sorry, uh, that's what they're doing. You know, they just borrow um, and, then, and then later on when they make money, they can give back. Um, honestly, I mean, my parents don't even have a retirement plan, so I, I can't imagine who I could ask. You know, who are these people that you think we can borrow from? I think there's such a lack of understanding about the people that you are supposedly serving sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask a question here about, like, um, 
how has the state's response been to the crisis in the arts, uh, to this crisis uh, in the arts vis a vis the pandemic? Uh, honestly, I mean, there have been some um, uh, grants uh, that have been quite, really quite helpful to, mm. to Ekamatra um, and, and our s- survivability throughout this uh, period. Um, so there have been grants like the Capability Development Scheme for the Arts mm. uh, that was really helpful in um, allowing me to do, um, what's it called, uh, training programs um, when we could not do anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a moment when, you know, I had no more colleagues, uh, I had no more employees, and it was just me. And I was really quite thankful that I, there was something that I was learning about marketing, about uh, non-profit management that I know would uh, change things about how I run uh, Tete Ikamatra once uh, things picked up again. Uh, there was There's also the Arts and Culture resilience package ACRP uh, which uh, gives uh, some money to com- some um, identified companies uh, uh, to help support their operations mm-hmm. um, so so yeah to be fair like there have been quite a few um, relatively forthcoming um, grants and support that, that has come out of it I, I do hope though that there are more conversations with um, companies and artists and uh, with the National Arts Council to really hear what we actually need so what what would you suggest the government does? I'm very curious about that. I suppose uh, we, we, we need to move towards an idea where uh, governments um, have something like a universal basic income, which guarantees the uh, fundamental basic minimum living standards of all human beings so that we're then free to use that to pursue things which may not be immediately profitable uh, obviously or ever profitable but which benefits society at large mm. um, but yeah what do, what do you think of how, how, how this should this paradigm of how governments yeah. and the arts how, what, what should it no absolutely I think the issue here I feel is that sometimes it's seen as um, uh, like I'm that the government is donating to us you know like okay mm. okay we'll, we'll give you some money to help you out but it's not it's actually I feel like um, the, the shift needs to be that it's seen as an investment, not only in arts companies, but in its people. Mm. Because I think the inherent need, uh, I think we are not cognizant of the inherent need for the arts, for people. Uh, and so if you, if, you, if you continue, if we continue seeing it as like, okay, we're helping you as opposed to we are investing in all of us, I think there'll always be this need to... Uh, uh, to be seen as service providers as you, mm. I think you, what you yeah. mentioned right yeah. like okay we give you X amount so you need to do three di- three of this three of that and then at some point after nine years ten years twelve years you better be sustainable on your own mm. but the issue is that the arts from for, for uh, not just in Singapore but the arts is usually not sustainable um on its own like you know that there needs to be um, uh, you know investment from the uh, from the government um, donations from the people uh, sales uh, you know raised earned income so on and so forth there's a it's really quite complex and different um, companies mature very differently due to the sort of uh, due to the communities that they serve so for Ekamatra it's been around for 33 years this year and um, it if, if you compared it to companies that have been around for as long as uh, ICA, you could see that it's very different. Some companies have 
like years ahead of us, you know, in terms of uh, the their staff head, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the head count of their staff, the the number of uh, productions that they produce, the uh, the audience, their reach, you know, everything so so com- like so different from Eka. But that's because our the community that we serve, the stories that we want to tell, is very different and comes with a whole set of um um bag- baggage as well, barriers, cultural barriers as well. And I think there is not enough of a nuanced understanding of this because of a lack of representation and diversity in leadership. Um, across cultural institutions in Singapore. So if you looked at um, some of these um, themes, uh, management themes, um, leadership themes, board of directors, you will see an intense dearth of, um, I mean, a complete lack of uh, ethnic minority leadership. Mm. And uh, some can say like, oh, you know, like, sure, let's let's bring people in. Uh, but who, right? So maybe there are not enough people. But what are you doing to change it for the future? Because, for example, something as um, seemingly objective as quality, um, it's it's not actually objective because mm-hmm. different people, um, you know, different art forms, different um, stories need a different eye um, uh, and are not... Um, I think the benchmark for the arts is usually very Western-facing. Mm-hmm. So, so some of these um, arts companies will never be seen as quality, will never be seen as good because you're comparing them to more Western-facing arts companies in Singapore even. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, what, what you're saying about that, that whole service thing, I don't know exactly how to change it. I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I think more diverse people need to be involved people who are not all from the same SES bracket not all from the same damn schools not not all from the same exact upbringing telling us like no actually you need to do it differently because we did it like this and then look at how well we've done Um, yeah so we are so afraid of having this conversation right about like where where are the Malays and Indians and Eurasians on these boards because um, they they have something else to say about it. If if you look around your board and you think we all look the same, then there's a really big issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask. Um, Wait, before we yeah, get that, yeah. I, I just want to point for uh, for our non Singapore listeners. You've used the term SES several mm-hmm. times. Sorry, but. Mm-hmm. Well, no, 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 I apologize. The, the, that's the official government term for class, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah, it shows yeah. how afraid also the government is of certain ideas in Singapore. Because when, you know, in, in all the educational system and discussions, official discussions, it's always social economic status, uh, status yeah. yeah, rather than class, which is fundamentally what they mean. Yeah. But they're so afraid of the word class that they use SES. Yeah. So that, that's very revealing about Singapore. But that, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and then we adopt these because these are the, this is the sort of language that we need to use in order to have theme conversation sometimes you know mm. yes yes yeah. yes and then uh, you know this is a very simple example of how government policy even the language it uses then affects the people who are you know it alters the people who are affected by it right and of course we've uh, had a whole bunch of podcasts where people have talked about how government policy and language around minority issues then transforms the minority community because you have to adopt that language you have to adopt certain behaviors and assumptions just to work with the government who are providing 50 percent of your funding if not more you know so it's it's um yeah, yeah. And, and those assumptions, of course, are from those people that you mentioned, all the same school, same background, same upbringing, same class, and so on. Mm. Same race, same language. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Sean. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I just want to ask, um, how has theatre in Singapore changed 
And where do you think it's headed, right? And I'm, and I'm sort of provoked to ask this question because, you know, I think when I was doing literature in secondary school, right, you know, my, my, my idea of, of theatre was always like Wild Rice Productions. It was very Chinese. And I didn't even know that. And then now, um, you know, we see uh, Theatre Ekmatra coming out doing uh, plays that are minority-focused. So how do you think um, theatre in Singapore is changing? What are some of the big uh, steps that we've taken to push ourselves forward? And where do you think we're heading? And, and uh, we also have a question in the Discord, specifically, mm. how do you think it'll change in response to the pandemic and whether those changes will be permanent after the pandemic? Mm. I think it all um, ends up uh, being about su- when, who gets to survive this pandemic. Mm. I think for a long while, um, I think we thought at ICA that we might have to you know, either go on like a long hiatus or just close the company because we were no longer sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are far too reliant on people. Uh, like we are, sometimes we are far too reliant on wanting people to volunteer um, as opposed to paying people. But I, I think I've, like I mentioned, I think I've completely moved away from that. I think, um, yeah, sure, there are volunteer positions such as board of directors, you know, like we can have advisors, so on and so forth. But people who are involved in the company, the day-to-day running, we can no longer expect that of anyone, mm-hmm. um, which was very much the model from before. So this is before the pandemic? Uh, this is maybe or, 10 okay. years ago. So yeah. So, so this is a trend from before the yeah, pandemic yeah. that you were relying less on volunteers? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, mainly because we wanted to make sure that, you know, um, I think a lot of people think if it's a Malay theatre company or an Indian theatre company, it's not professional. So uh, and, and this comes together with the fact that, uh, that most um, ethnic minority artists uh, are not full-time um, artists. So they have their day jobs and then at night they come and and uh, perform or direct uh, whatever it may be that their art form is. So I think um, that that has been a bit of a, a hindrance to, to professionalizing of these um, art forms uh, and, and scene, actually. Right. Yeah. And there's certain... Um, well, if I can compare to a certain institution in Singapore whose uh, majority of, our, of the members of it are not full-time, it's called parliament. <laughs> but, uh, you know, only the cabinet's full-time, everyone else is part-time and keeps their day jobs, but yeah. they're paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that, yeah. to be in parliament yeah. for, what, one, two afternoons a month. And somehow we don't regard that as unprofessional. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, like, in the arts, you are just expected to run on this word, um, passion, uh, but passion doesn't feed you. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't keep you. <laughs> no. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think I actually forgot what your question was. Okay. So, so, so what are some of the, I mean, if you could just tell us ah, yeah, one the change, of the big right? changes yeah, yeah, that we've, yeah. we've had. Uh, I think yeah. it, it moves together with um, our audience. And, and by audience, I meant, I mean the collective, you know, uh, people, uh, uh, audience that are interested in the arts or um, uh, as, uh, who see themselves as consumers of art or theatre. Mm-hmm. I think it, uh, we we that there's a bit of a parallel there. So now that more conversations around um, you know active citizenry around um, ethnic minoritarian issues are, are like are being put out there even more, mm-hmm. I think um, in general more arts companies um, are able to have these conversations as well because we our our job is sometimes to capture the zeitgeist of what's happening on on the ground, mm-hmm. and if we are not reflecting that then we're going to very easily become, uh, will easily become irrelevant, mm-hmm. right? So I think um, 
usually I, I imagine this is when more com- more people would want to watch ikamacha shows or or shows I mean or theaters the uh, theater works that are showing a different side of Singapore but at the same time these are usually the companies that can't actually afford to put on shows right now mm-hmm. so I don't know I don't know where where the future lies I think that um, I'm I'm really quite thankful that more conversations around these issues are uh, becoming more prevalent especially you know like with, with new narrative and, and other um people who are who are having these conversations very boldly having these conversations we are slowly becoming more and more um red i mean the audience is more and more ready and we are more ready as well to 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 caught these um stories mm-hmm. um with whether people survive um i mean whether companies and artists survive this um pandemic mm-hmm. um i i don't know I'm I'm in two minds. I do think that uh, people are, are a lot more forthcoming with their donations these days, mm-hmm. but um, especially last year. But you know, at some points it dries up mm-hmm. um, because the people who support our works um, are usually the first few that gets affected by um, you know economic changes as well. Okay. So, so I have to actually just ask a personal question yeah. here, since we have this wonderful opportunity to have a historian and a theatre practitioner in the same room. Um, I, I want to know, how do we go about unwhitening theatre, right? And, and, and it's, sort of a, it's sort of a big deal for me because I feel like, you know, how do you go about unwhitening not just theatre, but the arts as well? Because the entire canon is white, you know, the tropes... Uh, and the themes and the things that inspire you, you know, whether you like it or not, are going to be from this white Western canon. We often unwittingly end up reproducing uh, a lot of the issues uh, and, and what is at stake in, these, in the Western canon, right? So how do we go about unwhitening it? <laughs> this is a tough question. Man. I, I really, question. I really need to know because yeah. I did okay. Antigone like yeah. <laughs> how many times already? You know, like it's uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so one thing I immediately can think of is that it's collectively we need to continue supporting new work from um, Singaporean local regional uh, artists. We need to hear, and then we need to also respect more the uh, of the Eastern canon, like um, like stories from Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore itself, like. Uh, but but what sometimes we've noticed about our audience is that when we are doing more um, you know white the white canon I suppose mm-hmm. there's more interest like ooh you're doing you know uh, like a Malay version of a Clockwork Orange I mean I, I love a Clockwork Orange but mm. you know I, I get it like there, there is a lot of interest around that but then when we are doing something a bit more obscure uh, or uh, seemingly outdated just and, and I say outdated because I think people think Asian is outdated sometimes there's this idea mm-hmm. like oh Malay is outdated or oh, I'm not gonna watch a Malay theatre show because uh, I don't even speak Malay I, uh, we, we, we hear that so much so what do they mean by outdated um, uh, maybe not cool or not um, relevant anymore I think because of how much we subscribe to you know um, the US and the UK kind of um way of life I feel okay yeah alright not not that like I, I don't know outdated as in was there you know is it is it yeah, like yeah. drawing from the past or, um, or 
Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, or like, is it just a bias that, yeah. like, yeah, because Shakespeare yeah, is outdated, is incredibly outdated as well. Yeah. yeah, but that's the thing, right? Is is this like mindset? Like, you think like if it's white, it's it's cool and it's right and it's uh it's interesting because uh-huh. like, ooh, like what what's our perspective on like white things? But like when we we think about um you know works that are originating from here, people feel like oh you know I'm sure I've heard it. Like what what is Malay theater? Is it um bangsawan? What is Malay theater? Is it um you know stories that like um. Uh, like stories that we keep hearing from our youth but it's not that like we've grown uh, together and as much as any other civilization you know so I think um, there's just this idea um, uh, that we as as a company that is seen as a Malay theatre company um, keep having to battle as well actually mm-hmm. people always tell me that they don't come for my shows because they don't understand Malay mm-hmm. but there are subtitles uh, you know, like so. There's really, truly no excuse. Mm. Um, uh, you don't go for uh, Malaysians because I'm not Malay. Mm. You don't go for ethnic. Uh, you don't go for any sort of ethnic minority arts shows because you're not that ethnicity, or you're not interested, or you don't think that's relevant to you. So I think that's that's something that needs to change. I think that we need to realize how we need to unlearn um, that uh, white civiliz- civilization is the the civilization I think ours was in, like ours is incredible as well mm-hmm. uh, any tips for how we could do that um, to sort of cleanse this weird bias mm-hmm. that we've all been indoctrinated into yeah so I think that that's it right like um, support new works support works that are coming from people who are trying new things uh, telling different stories stories that may be very uncomfortable to you but you know mm-hmm. um Many stories were uncomfortable at first and then we learn from it and then it becomes part of our story, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think... Um, and also maybe um, allow for more experimentation in um, in the arts. Like, uh, And what I mean by that is that I feel like we should all come to the theatre not expecting... Not always expecting an incredibly polished... Um, piece of work mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's the sort of unlearning I think we need to do we're not watching we're not all watching Broadway and West End mm-hmm. um, you know like a lot of theatre in Singapore that's amazing is actually what would be seen as off 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 Broadway and West End mm-hmm. kind of thing you know and see even this I'm, I'm, I'm referencing uh, like you know uh, the UK and the US but mm-hmm. um, it's it's sometimes it feels sometimes impossible to not uh, not to yeah okay so what are the plans for the future, right? Not just for yourself, but also for Theatre Akamatra. Um, I think I mentioned much earlier in this uh, conversation that I've realised more about what I can do, not just for the company, but for the scene as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of it is actually pushing the conversation about arts philanthropy in ethnic minority communities more. Um, and what I mean by this is not, again, not just galvanizing a change in um, ethnic minority communities, but also getting the buy-in uh, from the majority uh, for works that should definitely be seen as um, national stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, that, that, that's going to be an uphill battle because I, I, that there's no, I don't have a formula to it yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's been successful in doing that yet. Uh, but I think this could 
come in many different forms. Uh, there's been a bit of change in the US and the UK coming out of research papers that tell you explicitly what is the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are talking about inequities in philanthropy, not just about who is giving, but also who they are giving to, who we are giving to. Mm-hmm. So uh, the more um, the, the the companies uh, who are more um, visible, the companies that have more reach, the companies that are. Su- already successful will continue being able to fundraise a lot better mm-hmm. and then like um, and I feel like the small companies will eventually the, the gap becomes uh, wider and wider right Yeah. Um, and I think that's the change that I would like to be a part of mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely not just the company that, that can do it it's not just me that can do it I think there needs to be more people involved mm-hmm. um, and and I think if there's so many different ways of, of doing this like um, we know what we want to do sometimes we just can't afford to do it so in this cases of course like my ask would be try uh, my ask would be try to support more of these companies mm. not just Data Ekamatra there are a lot of other companies that are doing amazing work at pushing for these conversations to, to happen more often mm-hmm. um, and the other way that you could help is also through uh, volunteering your time in terms of you know as a board of director uh, because if, if if people get more experiences being board of directors at smaller companies these people then become ready to be you know part of bigger institutions larger cultural institutions as well and this can affect uh, bigger changes as well yeah that's how that's how I feel um, yeah so I guess a more I, I have more understanding on what I think I can do to okay. change um, and that's what I'm quite um, excited about do, do you see yourself staying with Theatre Akimatra for the, you know the next couple of years or the long run even or are you going to move on branch out what are your what are the plans that you have inside you know I really really am very committed to what Akimatra is about mm-hmm. um, not only because what uh, not only because of what it has done for me in, in my youth, uh, but also because um, I, I really believe in the stories that we get to tell mm-hmm. um, that might not necessarily be the stories that other theatre companies can tell, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is where my home is and will be for um, a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, if you know in our succession plans, there's someone who is better than uh, I am to run this company I, I'd be happy to relinquish that position mm-hmm. and be be supportive in in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think I still have so much to give, um, and that's why I feel like this is still where um, I I want to be. Uh, but at the same time, I think um, I, I've had several different ideas about about this, um, where you know either we start a different, uh, other I I could start a different company or organization that supports ethnic minority companies in general, ethnic minority arts companies and leadership in general. Mm. Um, that that could be. Um, you know, aside from Ikamatra, like mm. this is not just pushing for a growth in this company, but also in other companies, other collectives, other artists. I think there's so much um, that we can still do for 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 this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's that that's floating around as well. Mm. I guess on that note, we're gonna uh, I'm gonna end off by asking you the big question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what is your theory of change? How do you think it's going to happen? How do you think it should happen? And what do you see your role as in pushing for change in Singapore? Um, so I feel like because uh, there are very few ethnic minority arts companies in Singapore, it's mm. very easy to um, 
for for people if they needed like a a person that's not I mean if they wanted their table to be a slightly diverse um, they would invite me mm-hmm. because you know for several reasons uh, and and I think um, for for the longest time I've been at that table and I mean uh, when when I have been invited to that table I will keep quiet and just listen mm-hmm. even if I disagree even if I don't uh, understand what they're saying um, I, I just am always I used to be very very thankful that I was even um, considered um, and now um, I realize that I I think it's so important to make people uncomfortable for a good reason mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it's to challenge their um, thinking um, you know I've, I've been at so many tables like this um, where people tell me that there's no racism in Singapore um, and and I, w- I would I think maybe like six, seven years ago, I would just keep quiet and like, mm, okay, or just like disappear because you know people look at you right because you are you are meant to represent all these other people <laughs> uh, that that's not uh, at the table. But mm-hmm. now, um, yeah, I I am so much more comfortable with discomfort uh, of being that annoying person who keeps talking to you about all these things because um, these issues don't end when I leave the office mm-hmm. you know these issues are issues that we live with every day um, and I I think it's um, for every one of us who have slight power or slight influence um, I, I want to use that mm-hmm. um, and, and it doesn't always look pretty it's not always comfortable and it's not always going to get you um, like uh, positive recognition mm-hmm. um, and I think I am not only comfortable about that now, but I'm also comfortable about pushing this company to be more, uh, to be beyond just serving ourselves. I think it's not just about the works that we are um, putting up. Mm-hmm. It's also about how we live our daily lives. Yeah. Uh, it's about the conversations that we choose to have with our friends. It's about the conversations that we choose to have with people who normally wouldn't have the opportunity to hear from people like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I guess my I, I truly believe in storytelling. Okay. Um, whether I help, I whether I aid in that storytelling or now slowly I'm trying to learn to be that storyteller myself as well. Mm-hmm. So on that on that note of, of storytelling, right? I I, I want to sort of just ask a question here, which is, you know, the arts and 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 theatre is at a as a is at a very interesting point in in human history, right? We we have we're in the midst of the death of the theatre. Right, less and less people are going to the theatre, less and less people are joining uh, the profession of being a theatre practitioner. But then at the same time, we're also recognising the immense power of the arts, the immense power of media and representation, and having our stories told and preserved uh, and archived. Right. So how do you think storytelling, as you put it, um, is going to push us into the future, is going to push social change in these very, very interesting contemporary times? I think it's generally become more accessible. I think people have always been telling stories. You know, storytelling is is, is um, as old as the world. But um, now it's become more accessible. Whether it's through social media, through streaming platforms, there are just more stories being told. And I think um, what's going to change is that. Uh, it's given some power to stories that have never been heard before always been told I'm pretty sure about that mm-hmm. but it's about being able for their story these stories to be heard and listened to and I think um, 
it's not just about actively looking out for them anymore, but it's also f- uh, about it being just a, a lot more forthcoming uh, to us. And uh, I think the choice is now very much in our hands, whether we listen to it, feel propelled by it to, to do more in our lives, or you literally have to actively not want to listen mm-hmm. now. And I think that that is huge. Yes. Yeah. So on that note, I want to thank you so much, uh, Shaz Aisha, for uh, talking to us and having this very enlightening conversation. Um, if we want to find out more about the work that you do or we want to attend uh, a play or uh, even, I mean, personally, the Kampung Glam Tales, that one still sticks out to me. But if we want to find out more information, we want to get involved and we want to watch and support Theatre Ekamatra, how can we do that? Uh, follow us at Theatre Ekamatra, T-E-A-T-E-R-E-K-A-M-A-T-R-A on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And if you'd like to give, um, the easiest way really is uh, giving.sg and oh. look uh, look for us, Theatre Ekamatra. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to no, all the you. new things coming out. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Shaza. Uh, we had a really fantastic conversation and I've learned so much today and really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and all the best to you and I can't wait for your next show. I'll definitely be there. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and as thank always, you. thank you, Sean, for your questions, co-hosting. Fantastic as always. Thank you to our members who joined us on Discord. Thank you for your questions and comments. And thank you to you, our listener. Uh, for tuning in as always um, if you found this useful if you like the work we do and you want to continue supporting us please do join New Narrative as a member we are completely dependent on membership revenue and donations so go to newnarrative.com slash join to join as member on newnarrative.com slash donate to donate so thank you very much and see you next time where you come where you are where you think that you're gonna go